You are listening to the first Sasta podcast of 2017, and what a year we have ahead for you, with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings on Snapchat with two Bs, and brought to you by the godfather of Sass himself, Jason Lemkin, found on Twitter at JasonLK. Now, if you'd like to join me, Jason Lemkin, along with Facebook's Dustin Moskovitz, Y Combinator's Sam Altman, and HubSpot's Darmesh Shah at Sasta Annual in February, then all you have to do is purchase your tickets, and when you do, enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY, those three words, DRINKSWITHHARRY, and you'll not only get a whopping 20% off the ticket price, but also an invite to the hottest party SF has had in years. It is, of course, the first of many drinks with Harry Mojito parties with me and Jason. And you always hear me say how incredible Sasta is, but I wanted to take you inside Sasta Annual today and show you the incredible content that you could enjoy firsthand if you come to the conference. Which brings me to the show today, which is an excerpt from a presentation at Sasta Annual 2016, presented by the one and only Aaron Hoffman. Now, Aaron is best known for being the former CEO and founder at LiveRamp, the leading data onboarder that was acquired by Axiom for $310 million. Today's talk focuses on the five core lessons he took from that incredible journey. Aaron was also an angel investor and board member at Brightroll prior to its $610 million acquisition by Yahoo. And today, he is the CEO at SafeGraph, the startup that is unlocking the world's most powerful data so that machines and humans can answer some of society's toughest questions. However, before we meet the main man that is Aaron, if you attend Sasta, you will also get to meet and see the incredible Algolia product and team at the event. Algolia, the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning fast typo tolerance search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia frees up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash Sasta podcast. However, enough from me, so I now take you to Aaron Hoffman speaking at Sasta Annual 2016. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Just quickly, we're, we're going to talk about it's basically five core lessons that I learned from LiveRamp, what we're doing from those lessons in the new company I'm involved with, with Siftery. So the first lesson is all-around athletes beat position players, at least in the early days. Second lesson is put yourself in a box to define optionality. The third lesson is focus on a small market um, that you can actually win. The fourth lesson is uh, about salespeople, about the product-oriented salespeople versus relationship-oriented sales people. And the fifth lesson is basically about the future of enterprise software. Okay, so that's our quick journey, basically five lessons, five slides. So the first lesson is, you know, basically, again, you have these all-around athletes, um, which are the basically people with potential versus the position players, which are the people um, with experience. And so if you know what you're going to do and you're very sure where the world is going, almost always position players beat all-around athletes. If you know you're going to be playing football, in the Super Bowl, you need a kicker who can kick field goals. And you need to have one of the best kickers in the world. Otherwise, you ain't going to the Super Bowl. But if you don't know what sport you're going to play, you might be playing the decathlon. Maybe the person who can only kick field goals might not be the person you should be getting on your team. So in the early days, essentially, kind of our core thesis is all-around athletes are better than position players. People with potential are better than experience. And that was kind of our core learning at LiveRamp. Almost every single person at LiveRamp was hired with 
less than uh, less than five years of experience. Almost every single person we ever hired out of like the 200 people hired at LiveRamp was hired with less than five five years of experience. And as we grew, we promoted those people to manage. Uh, the person who took my job over and is now running the company, we hired out of college. And so he's now running the 200 person company today. When you scale and you know what you're doing, then you know bringing in those position players can be sometimes really helpful. Now this is pretty controversial, so hopefully we can have some questions about this. Okay, second thing is to put yourself in a box. Again, this is pretty controversial. Most people don't agree with me here, but my core thing in, in, is to be as focused as possible, to put yourself in a box, and the box basically says what you're not going to do. And I think you should publicly state to everyone who will listen, that includes your customers, your partners, your employees, your investors, anytime you talk publicly about your company, this is what we don't do. We're not gonna do all these things. We're just gonna do this tiny little thing. We're only gonna do this thing. Here's where we're gonna go when we're putting our in a very defined box. Almost every smart person in the world will disagree with me. They'll say, no, you need to leave your options open. You need to be able to do all these things. You don't know where the world is going to take you. But I think you can be smart enough to know where the world is going and put yourself in a box and really, really, really own that particular box. At LiveRamp, you know, people would always say, oh, are, are you going to do media? We say, well, we're never going to do media. Are you going to build applications? No, we're never going to build applications. Um, you know, we're just a middleware company. We're just going to move data between one application to another. Today, that's still all LiveRamp does, you know, all these years later. It doesn't do anything else. It just basically moves data between applications. Do you actually do anything with the data? No. We just move data between applications. We'll only do that. We'll never do anything else. That's the only thing we're going to do. If you do that, if you do, if you eschew optionality and you stay focused, then it's really easy for all your employees to make decisions. If the strategy is clear what you'll never do, you can push all of decisions down to the lowest rung of your employees. If the strategy isn't clear, you need to micromanage your employees a lot more. Um, you need to be involved with a lot more of the decision making. Almost every strategic deal that has to be done by one of like the three strategic people in your company because not everyone will know enough to know what's going on. So the clearer you can make the strategy of what you will and will not do, the easier it is to push that down. At Siftery, we're doing the same thing. Siftery, the first thing people ask us if you go to the siftery.com site is, oh great, I'm a vendor, I wanna pay you. Well, we're never gonna take money from vendors, sorry. We're only, we're gonna try to build tools for buyers and not for vendors. And yes, people constantly are asking us, oh great, you, know, you can build all these products, you can get all this money. But being publicly out there of not doing something allows a lot more clarity from the entire organization to go forward. Okay, that's two. Three. Again, this is also pretty controversial. If you're starting a company or you're starting a new product in your company, my advice is to find the smallest market that you could go after. Find the tiniest, tiniest market and go after that market and own that market. The best market has three basic core things that you want to look for. One is that it's really, really small. And we'll talk about why in a second. The second is that you can own it so that you will be the dominant player. Hopefully you'll own over 50% market share. And the third is that the market is gonna grow really, really, really fast, right? That's the three best things to go after. The reason why you wanna go after a small market is because no one else is gonna care about it and therefore you can own it. If, if you're going after a large market, everyone else is gonna care about that market. So you wanna go after the smallest market as possible. When LiveRamp started our first year in business, 2011, first year with our product, um, our market, total market, for what we were doing was $3 million. $3 million was the total market. 
Um, and we had two competitors out there. We did a million first year revenue and we had two other competitors that were out there, but those competitors both were part of companies that had over 100 million in revenue, and they didn't really care about this market. They weren't gonna fight hard to make that market win. Second year live ramp revenue, we did nine million in revenue, nine million in SaaS revenue. So we did more in revenue second year than the entire market was the first year, because we picked a market that was growing. We picked a market we could find that was growing. Third year uh, revenue live ramp, we did 21 million in revenue, and we were profitable. And that's super fast growth for a profitable company. You almost never see a SaaS company grow that fast when it's profitable. And the reason is, is well, we own the market. And it was much easier to be profitable. We own the market. Our sales expenses were really, really tiny. We did $21 million in revenue with five salespeople because we own the market. It's like, well, if you want, this is like, it's pretty easy to sell. Either like, either we could sell it to you or not. Like, either you needed it or not. Um, we were the market leader. We had the best product in the market. Nobody else really cared enough about that market to really focus on that market. Uh, now, the numbers since, so that was 2013. Numbers since are somewhat public because now we're part of a public company, but it's still one of the fastest growing SaaS companies of its size that's around and really because it owns the market. Fourth thing, and this is also going to be controversial, there's basically two types of salespeople that are out there. There's product-oriented salespeople and there's relationship-oriented salespeople. And you need to figure out what type of company you are and you need to figure that out fast um, because it's really gonna change the type of salespeople you need. Relationship-oriented salespeople are the typical salesperson that you find. They're gregarious, they're outgoing, they're extroverted, they're your friend, they're buying drinks for everyone, they're gonna talk to you when they're on the airplane, they're going to you know, trade information, they're the life of the party, they're gonna tell jokes. That's the relationship-oriented salesperson. If you're selling a product which has a lot of competition and is not as differentiated, and you need to be honest with yourself if you are, that relationship salesperson is gonna be really helpful they're going to build really good relationships with the, with the customer, and they're going to actually um, uh, um, uh, get that sale going. The product-oriented salesperson is introverted. They look at their shoes. They're not the life of the party. They, after they, when, when the cocktail hour comes, they actually go to their hotel room and shoot off like 50 emails. Now, they're just as competitive as the relationship-oriented salesperson, but they're much more into the weeds of the product. Product-oriented salespeople usually don't have a sales engineer. They're actually the sales engineer themselves. They're much more technical. They're much more involved. If you have a product that is really differentiated, if you have a product that is really different, and again, you've got to be honest with yourself, then you want the product-oriented salesperson. Product-oriented salesperson is never taking someone to the baseball game. Never. They're just going out there and they're explaining the product. They're patient with the customer. They're working with the customer to help that customer understand what they do and understand the capabilities. And then they're really making the decision up to the customer of whether or not they should buy this product because it's different. Differentiated. And so they're really what their, their main goal is they're trying to get the customer to understand the true capabilities of the product, not the razzle-dazzle, here's just, here's just what we do. And then you as a customer, and, and you have to be very smart and technical because you have to answer a lot of questions and be patient as the customer gets up the learning curve. At LiveRam, every one of our salespeople, all of our top salespeople are product-oriented salespeople. They're all introverted. Our top salesperson who runs the sales team, his first job out of college was a chip designer uh, at AMD. And so it's an incredibly successful uh, building out some, with, the, with these more introverted salespeople. My number one mistake as a founder was hiring extroverted salespeople to sell a product-oriented product. And the last thing that we'll talk about today is the future of enterprise software. Why are you all here 
here at SAS. They're all here at Saster because there's just this massive abundance of enterprise software. Almost all of you are at an enterprise software company, or you're probably somebody who invests in enterprise software companies, right? The number of enterprise software companies has gone up 20x in the last 10 years. The number of the number of software companies that the average company buys, let's say a company like Best Buy, the average company like Best Buy buys has gone up 10x in the last 10 years. A company like Best Buy had about maybe 45 vendors. Today, they have about 450 vendors. The number of buyers within an enterprise software company has gone up 12x. Uh, there used to be a small number of people that buy software. Now, there's a huge number of people within the company that are buying software or influencing the buying of that software. And the budgets have gone up dramatically as well over the last 10 years. The budget for software... Um, within most of these big companies has gone up like this. The budget for people, for employees, has been flat last 10 years of large companies. So they're making a conscious choice to replace people with APIs, people with software, people with, essentially they're using your companies for people. And this is happening everywhere. This, and so you have to think about how do I play into this market of abundance? Am I on, which side am I on? Am I on the side where I'm going to have just massive competition? I think that's okay as long as you've got something very differentiated uh, because people will buy. It used to be that if somebody bought SAP and SAP had a feature that they were essentially getting for free because they already bought SAP, which was worse than your product, they'll still stay with SAP. They won't use their product. Today, if your product is better than the free one they're getting from SAP, they're buying your product. They're used to doing that. And it's so much easier to sell into companies today. So it's okay, but you, you will have more competition. Or are you playing on the other side of it, like the middleware companies, LiveRamp, SnapLogix, MuleSoft, you know, all these middleware companies that are that essentially Saster. Saster essentially is a middleware company, right? It's just a, it's a basically a conference. It's bringing all these vendors together. They're allowing to talk to each other. It's like a human middleware company is what Saster is right here. So Saster plays into this global trend. So in some ways, you're going to be affected by this trend. It's becoming much easier to buy software. So many of you maybe can make your sales are going to be much easier than it was before. It's much easier to start these companies. Um, there's a lot more competition in every given space. So we're all going to play into this trend. So with that, now we're going to hopefully we'll uh, get your questions as well. Actually, I've got one. Oh, great. Really start. So awesome. on your point about starting with a small market, at Lighter Capital, we fund a ton of SaaS companies and a ton of companies focused on relatively niche markets. And we see more and more and more, and we've got maps of what different niche markets are coming up. But one thing I'd love to learn is how is it that you identify such a small market that's growing quickly? Because it's not like you can get a Gartner report. Yeah. Because by the time Gartner's come out and made a report about a fast-growing market, it's $4 billion. Yeah. Right? Um, so how is it you've identified that kind of stuff? Because I think there are a lot of people that are thinking about founding companies and want to find a place to go, but like, how do you identify that? It would be a great lesson, I think. Yeah. So yeah, if Gartner's writing a report on it, first of all, Gartner has never in the history wrote a report where it didn't have multiple companies in the... So it's already writing a report about something that's fairly competitive. So usually it means you have to have some sort of proprietary knowledge. You have to understand this space better than others. And this is why, if you're old like me, 
this is where old guys like me have an advantage. And so if you're old, I'm, I'm on the old side of the, of the tech world, this is where you wanna be. You wanna be in a place where you can have an advantage, you can use your experience. If you're young, you should probably be doing like a B2C type of thing, right? That's where yeah. you have kind of the edge. So use your experience to your advantage. Find kind of like some weird niche that maybe people don't totally understand. Uh, maybe it takes a lot of proprietary knowledge to, to get. I think that one of the challenges that's come up that would also be interesting from that is going on to raise equity when you're focused on something small. Because a lot of VCs really want to, they really want to see that you have a big market. Like you yeah. started your speech with who, who here is addressing a billion dollar market? Because if you're not addressing a billion dollar market, it might be hard to raise equity money. But if you start small and focused, I totally agree that it's, you've got a better business in the long run, but it can be sometimes hard to sell that to investors. You're, you're absolutely a big right. vision about a Ra- raising, small market. Raising money in a small market is really hard. By definition, if you're going after a small market that you think is going to grow fast, most people won't believe you that it's going to grow fast. Otherwise, other people would be already be in this market. You have to convince these people that it will grow fast. VCs aren't any smarter than anyone else here. And so it's going to be very difficult to convince them that this is going to be a, uh, mar- you know, a lot of them will think the market's going to tap out or et cetera. My retort is, look, if someone says, well, the market's only going to be, you're, you're, you're gonna, I know you're going to get to 25 million in revenue and that's going to be great, but I, I really want to only invest in a company that can get to a billion in revenue. My retort to them is, look, look at our team. If you think we're smart enough to, once we get to 25 million, to find an adjacent market where we can continue to grow at 100% year over year, then invest in us. If you don't think we're a good enough team, then you shouldn't be investing in us. Put the pressure on them to, to say, look, like, are we, if you don't think we're a good enough team, that's fine then you probably shouldn't invest in us anyway. But if you do, we're probably smart enough to move to an adjacent market. So my question is relating, you've got three, we've got three converting buyer personas, completely different niche markets. What you said, I believe in slide two, we want to find one that we want to double down on and own that buyer persona's market. Definitely. Does it make sense for us to put down our cards and neglect the other two converting buyer personas and just own the one that we see the most potential in? How do you typically approach that situation when you know you can make money on other segments? My, my, without knowing anything about your business and probably likely to be wrong, but my bias would be to immediately focus on the one thing that you think has the most potential or for whatever reason you, you're going to do the best at, your product is the best fit for, and publicly tell every all your employees, we're not, we're not going to work, we're not going to worry about these other guys. We're not going to go after them. We're just going to go after this persona. We're going to own this persona. We're going to build tools for the persona. I want you to sleep when you're dream. I want you to dream about this persona at night, and we're going to do everything possible to build things for this persona. Following up on that question, I mean, would you, if you got customers in other segments that actually came to you and said, hey, we want your product, would you refuse the business? Potentially. I mean, one of the other things, one of the other things in SaaS companies is the most important thing in SaaS companies is churn. Um, in the end, it's like basically is customer satisfaction. Do customers love your product? And are they going to stick with your product? And so you want to sell to people you know are going to benefit from it. And when someone wants to buy it and you don't believe we're going to benefit from it as much as they should, you might be wrong. So you might want to investigate, okay, why do you want to buy it? What's going on? If you believe they're not going to benefit from it as much as they should, I think having an unhappy customer in the long run 
um, is generally not a good strategy. What's your tips for finding the high potential candidates when you're hiring them? Can you give us like a two highlights? How do you pick your the people you're going to hire? So first of all, like hiring people is incredibly humbling. One of the things that is even more humbling is let's say you hire 30 people. Yeah, okay, you may have like five that don't work out or 10 or whatever it is that don't work out. You'll also have like these five superstars, let's say, right, that end up becoming superstars. And those people are the really people that really drive your organization. In my personal experience, I have never, I priori, been able to pick out the superstars before they were superstars. So, you know, I might have hired 40 people. Maybe they all turned out to be at least pretty good, and they may all be A players, but there were like four of them were just these absolute superstars. I wasn't smart enough to know before I hired them that they would be this just incredible people. And those are the people that really drive you. Now, of course, once you work with them, it's easy, right? You Once you've worked with them before, it's really easy to know in the future. Uh, so this is basically a long-winded way of saying I have no freaking clue uh, <laughs> how to do it. And if anyone here comes up with the uh, way, please tweet me or email me. I, I would love to know how to hire better. And I'd like to say a huge thank you to Aaron for speaking at Sasta last year. And if you enjoyed his talk today, then you must head on over to Sasta.com and buy tickets for Sasta Annual 2017. And when you enter the promo code Drinks with Harry, those three words, Drinks with Harry, you'll not only get a staggering 20% off the ticket price, but also an invite to the hottest party in town. It is, of course, my mojito party, very kindly hosted by Godfather of Sass himself, Jason Lemkin. And if you enjoyed the show today and would like to hear more from me and Jason, you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs or Jason on Twitter at JasonLK. And if you do make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual, then you'll see the incredible Algolia team in person. Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that really delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is also a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SASTA podcast. And as always, we so appreciate the support and I cannot wait to bring you our next episode.